Coming up on Philosophy Talk. What's an internet troll? I've heard of these. They emerged from Usenet after the Great Flame War of 99. They feed off of negative reaction. Why are people so mean to each other online? Should we just turn off the comment section? Just turn off the comment section. Just don't read that crap. Who wrote that? That's anonymous. Well, I'm responding to it. Uh, don't lower yourself to their level. Look, I am simply going to defend our work, scientist to scientist. And failing that, suggest that his mother enjoys a string of both human and non-human lovers. Do people behave any better online when they're not anonymous? How do we as individuals foster a healthier online environment? Why isn't it possible to have an online forum that encourages humility and politeness? Our guest is Michael Lynch from the University of Connecticut author of The Internet of Us, Trolling, Bullying, and Flame Wars, Humility, and Online Discourse. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Hi, I'm Ray Briggs. And I'm Josh Landy. Thank you for downloading this episode of Philosophy Talk. Did you know that we've got a library of more than 500 episodes over at our website? Yeah, philosophytalk.org, we question everything. Except your intelligence. From Aristotle to Zeno, from anarchy to Zen. Become a subscriber today at philosophytalk.org. And now, on with the show. Why is the internet so full of trolling, bullying, and flame wars? Does the web make people nastier and more arrogant? Or is it possible to cultivate more kindness and humility online? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, a program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. And I'm Josh Landy. We're here at the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where I teach philosophy and Josh directs the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. Today we're thinking about trolling, bullying, and flame wars as part of our ongoing series on intellectual humility. You know, I have to confess something, Josh. I may be in a minority, but I actually love the internet. Some of my most rewarding conversations, conversations with friends and political allies, even political opponents, philosophical collaborators, and these people are spread out all over the world, have taken place over the web. It's an amazing tool. Ugh, try hanging out in the comments section of 4chan or, or even YouTube. I mean, these are places where you've got anonymous exchanges between strangers that are never going to meet each other, and, and they quickly devolve into bullying, trolling, name-calling, I mean, you, you name it, right? Or, or try confronting the online mobs that harass people they disagree with. Uh, uh, no thanks, Josh. I think I'll stay away from that. I thought you loved the internet. I do. Uh, it doesn't mean I have to love mobs, though. Well, you can't have one without the other. Oh, Josh, come on. There have always been mobs and trolls. And no doubt there always will be. And now, sure, in the age of the Internet, some of the mobs have moved online. But big deal. Oh, it is a big deal. I mean, the, the Internet has totally changed the face of bullying. Oh, come on, Josh. You exaggerate. How? Well, because people do things in cyberspace that they wouldn't do in everyday life. A psychologist actually have a name for it. It's called the online disinhibition effect. The online, so okay, it, there's this fancy phenomenon with a fancy name that's hard to pronounce, but what's your point? Well, the point is that the technology frees mobs from geographical restrictions, and that's a huge difference because they then become insulated both from the damage they cause and from any possibility of accountability or punishment. Oh, you can't blame the internet for that. The internet, after all, is just a tool. It's like a hammer or a horse or whatever, and like any tool, it can be used for good or for ill. 
And besides, bullies will be bullies no matter the platform, Josh, online or off. It just doesn't matter. Well, next thing you're going to tell me that guns don't kill people, people do. Uh, I, I never say that, but, but, but look, I got to ask you, what's your alternative? You, do you want to censor the internet like in China? Well, what, you don't believe in the free marketplace of ideas? Now, look, yeah, okay, the internet, Some because of the internet, the marketplace of ideas gets a little rough and tumble at times, but it's always been. That's the price we pay for freedom, Josh. It's just becoming too high a price. I mean, we're witnessing the total degradation of public discourse. Oh, come on, Josh, chill. Come on. Look, there's a real danger to our democracy, Ken. I mean, people are losing their privacy. People are even dying as a result of bullying and doxing. Gosh, I think you're being way too alarmist. I don't think you're appreciating what happens to people on the Internet. It hasn't changed me or you. You're still the same cool guy I've always known. It changes everybody, at least a little bit, Ken. I mean, think about the bystander effect. Uh, the bystander effect? Well, you know, that's when people are less likely to help a victim if there are other people around who might lend a hand. I, I know, I know, I know that. But what's I got to do with trolling and bullying? That's what I'm asking you. Well, the point is that people's behavior can be radically distorted by the situation they find themselves in. And, and, and so, so now apply that to the situation of the Internet, right? That's a situation where you're interacting with anonymous strangers that you're never going to see face to face. Well... That's going to make people behave badly. And even people that would ordinarily be meek as lambs, that's the problem with the Internet. That's not the problem with the Internet per se. That's the problem with particular platforms. And you know what, Josh? If you don't like those platforms, just stop using them. Just walk away. And besides, maybe a little creativity. We can design new platforms that don't encourage bad actors. Dream on. That's never going to happen. You're never going to be able to design a platform that solves those problems. Look, there's just something inherently antisocial about the Internet. Inherently? Oh, come on. Just think, just look again, think about AI and the limitless possibilities of it. We could use AI maybe to moderate the comment sections automatically of these things. Or or we could monitor uh, for bullying via AI. We could even use it to zap the bullies through the web. What do you think about that, Josh? Okay, so let me get you straight. Instead of having the government regulate the Internet, you want AI to regulate well, the Internet. Well, yeah. So instead of 1984, you want Blade Runner. Oh, well, look, not Josh, much of a difference. Josh, I'm obviously not getting through to you today. I'm afraid we're just going to have to agree to disagree. Well, that's better than what happens online. Uh, and maybe this will convince you. Our roving philosophical reporter, Holly J. McDeed, took a look at a recent case of online harassment that may have been made worse by the Internet. She files this report. It had only been 47 minutes since a gunman opened fire inside a high school in Parkland, Florida. The death toll was unknown, the shooter not yet captured. And yet the conspiracy theorists lurking in online forums and sites like 4chan, 8chan, Reddit, and Twitter were already on the prowl. The conspiracy theories, as they often do after a major mass violence event involving guns, began pretty much immediately. Abigail Olheiser covers digital culture for The Washington Post. She says that after the shooting, conspiracy theorists took to the internet, describing the massacre as a hoax. A video claiming shooting survivor David Hogg was an actor paid to pose as a victim became the number one trending YouTube video. And by that point, it then started to get media coverage, which uh, had the simultaneous effect of calling out these conspiracy theories um, and also then amplifying them even further. Conservative-minded Twitter users shared a doctored meme claiming to show Parkland survivor Emma Gonzalez ripping apart the U.S. Constitution. 
she was actually tearing a gun range target. This meme went, you know, pretty viral on the right-wing internet. And soon after that, you started seeing kind of more conspiratorial ideas creep into slightly more mainstream discourse. What began as harassment among anonymous fringe groups online soon grabbed headlines. Jamie Bartlett, author of The Dark Net and People vs. Tech, says stirring up outrage is often exactly what online antagonists want. The whole purpose of it is to react. I think most of the people that do this don't really believe anything they're saying. They're calibrating their words to try to cause the maximum offence possible. A few years ago, Bartlett was determined to understand more about what drives online fringe cultures. So he dove deep inside the dark net, an encrypted network that can't be accessed with traditional web browsers. This is where there are the illegal drugs markets like the infamous Silk Road, uh, illegal images of children, terrorist propaganda, uh, hacker services for hire. And then there's the trolls. While touring the darknet, Bartlett met a self-described troll known as Zack. Like past generations of neighborhood watchdog-type trolls, he would target misogynistic and extremist communities, luring them into arguments designed to rile them up. Zack was frustrated by the new breed of trolls. Trolling, in his mind, had become associated with rape threats and death threats and racism and, and all of this stuff, which, which he simply says that's not really trolling. Tr that's just being a racist on the internet. When Bartlett met some of the people scurrying anonymously in the dark web in the real world, they seemed a lot more friendly, more kind, and less menacing. They are more afraid of you than you are of them. It's like a spider in your bathroom. They simply enjoy getting some rise out of people because there's nothing else for them to do. The moral of the story, he says, may always be don't feed the trolls, don't take them seriously. But with online harassment, the victims on the other end of the computer screen are real people with real emotions. I don't care if someone is playing. I don't care if they're being ironic. I don't care if they think they're trolling. That's not important. Winnie Phillips is the author of This Is Why We Can't Have Nice Things, a book about online trolling and mainstream culture. The important thing is to totally sidestep the, you know, the discussion of what someone's motivations are and focus on the impact. What impact do those behaviors have? Phillips says there's practically no way to distinguish between the attention-seeking jokester trolls and the people trapped in their delusions. It's almost impossible to separate whether this is a problem with the internet or with people. Those spaces make it so that we just don't know. You don't know if someone is sharing a conspiracy theory because they genuinely believe that it's true or if because they are simply trying to amplify the story to generate the most destructiveness that they can. And, Philip says, you can't distinguish online between sarcasm and sincerity either. If someone were to ask philosophical questions about intellectual humility in a chat room, they might be serious. But it could also be a trap set by a troll lurking and waiting for someone new to flame. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Holly J. McDeed. Thanks for that fascinating tour of the dark corners of the internet, Holly. I'm Ken Taylor. With me is my Stanford colleague, Josh Landy. And today we're thinking about trolling, bullying, and intellectual humility. We're joined now by Michael Lynch, professor of philosophy at the University of Connecticut and author of The Internet of Us, Knowing More and Understanding Less in the Age of Big Data. Michael, welcome to Philosophy Talk. 
Well, thanks for having me, guys. Okay, so Michael, you write a lot about the effects of the internet, especially on how we think, reason, and know. So tell me, how did you first get interested in this topic? Well, I think the first time that I really got the bug of thinking about philosophy and the internet together was when a couple years ago with my my uh, daughter, I was just going through a sort of game of let's figure out the answers to some ordinary questions without using digital technology at all, just to see what would what what would turn out. Some of those questions range from like how to put an engine together, which was hard anyway to really what seemed like really simple ones, like what's the number for my local congressional representative? Hmm. Turned out no all these, books. answering all these questions, right, turned out to be really hard. Because, you know, for example, go to library, you ask somebody behind the desk for some help, and they say, <laughs> there's the computer over <laughs> there. <laughs> what are you asking me for? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And if, and, if you, and if you tell them like I did, no, you don't understand. I can't use the internet. They look at you like, okay, just back away, back away. I mean, the point is, is that it turned out that trying to figure out how to know things without the internet now is sort of like, well, you know, I've never done this, but you know the people that like dress up in Civil War costumes, right? And they try to reenact you, the past. You become a bizarre person. That's what it was person. like. So, yeah. Right, I was reenacting the past. So clearly, the past was only a few years ago, right? Right, and clearly, so clearly, this counts as odd behavior nowadays. But what what are the effects? I mean, so Ken and I were arguing a moment ago about whether the internet's just a, a neutral tool, as Ken was suggesting, or whether it might have an actual negative impact on the users. Well, intrinsically, right? It might intrinsically be a kind of thing that prompts people in a bad direction. So, what's your view on this? I think that the Internet itself, if you think about the Internet as just a massive worldwide web that supports things like um, email, for example, that itself is not intrinsically good or bad. But I think it's a whole different question when you think about the Internet in terms of the platforms that are on it. And most of the time, when we're talking about the Internet now, an ordinary conversation, when we think about it, we're actually thinking about platforms, not the actual structure, right, the wires and so forth and the cloud right. that sits behind it. I mean, and I, that, I think, can be really bad. I tend to agree, but let me push this a little bit. I mean, isn't it the case that uh, our experience online is a kind of disembodied and often anonymous uh, experience, doesn't that have an effect? Well, it certainly does have an effect. In fact, uh, the being anonymous is does lead to some of the very bad effects that you were talking about before. It's it's part of the uh, intrinsic nature of many of those platforms. It's neither. It's not particularly intrinsic to the internet itself. But uh, now we might just be getting into semantics. Yeah, you're making because I a, do think. That, yeah, go ahead. You're making a fine distinction between the internet and, uh, as a whole, not being a neutral tool, and certain platforms on the internet that exploit these internet capacities being themselves designed in such a way that they're intrinsically bad. But we'll have to explore this in some greater detail. I know philosophers love distinctions, and that's important. You well, are. It's listening. important to make these distinctions, or trolls get on to you online. Exactly. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're thinking about intellectual humility and the internet with Michael Lenz from the University of Connecticut. Have you ever been tempted to troll or bully someone on the internet? Do you think the internet brings out the worst in people? Has it made us less humble and more arrogant? Humility, arrogance, and the internet, plus your calls and emails, troll-free, when Philosophy Talk continues. Is there a difference between bullying on the p 
playground and being a bully online. I'm Ken Taylor. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy, and we're asking about trolling, bullying, and intellectual humility online. Our guest is Michael Lynch from the University of Connecticut, author of The Internet of Us. So, Michael, you, Josh, and I all seem to believe that a lot of online discourse is a mess. We're not, I'm not quite sure we agree about what causes it. So I want you to say more about why you think this messy, awful, bullying discourse happens and what are the features of various platforms, whether intrinsic or not, that promotes this kind of thing. Well, I think one thing to say right away is that a lot of our social platforms, let's take Facebook as an example. Why not beat up on them? Everybody else is right now. <laughs> well, they're um, deserving it right now. And they, right, indeed. They've been asking for it, um, as a troll might say. But one of the features of those <laughs> sorts of platforms is they, uh, they, they have a sense of immediacy to them. If they're a successful platform, that's because they manage to sort of get us into thinking that we're connecting with people emotionally via the platform. And oftentimes that actually is the case. But they, as a result, they sometimes can make people think that, well, we're actually in a real conversation here. But then, of course, the thing that we talked about right before the break, the fact that people are also anonymous online, uh, you know, even on platforms like Facebook, where lots of people, of course, are not anonymous, but they can be if they want to. That combination can make for make people particularly vulnerable. Yeah. Because if I'm opening myself up to you, right, and you take advantage of that fact by dropping in like a hurricane onto the conversation and or posing as somebody you're not, that can really, really be painful. Uh, so that, you think you're that, saying, you know. It's kind of a bait and switch kind of thing. It sounds like you're saying. Is that how you're? I mean, it's like I, it gives you this illusion of of like an intimate conversation in which you want to be open. And but the reality is, I, I, and I've been thinking about this a lot recently. The reality of it is, is that it's also a drop in conversation. That is, people in an intimate conversation, the stranger, if he over, if he or she is overhearing you, is intruding. And that's not good. But Facebook opens you up to all these people. They may be your Facebook friends, but in reality, they're strangers. So it's like it invites you to have this sense of intimacy, but it invites the stranger to, like, be an exactly. interloper. And, and one of the things that I think uh, is the case is we don't really have norms or rules that are widely accepted on how to handle this. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in a, you know, for example, if you're in a bar and you're talking to somebody and somebody else comes up out of the blue and just interrupts, right, and starts talking, well, both of the first two people are generally know what to do. They sort of ignore the other person or try to get them out of the way or they say, excuse me, we were talking here and things like that. That is sort of seen as rude behavior in most cases, um, especially if the person being particularly aggressive. We don't, and that sort yeah. of feels like that online, but a lot of times... Because we don't know who people are, it's really hard to know how to navigate situations like the drop-in troll that you just uh, talked about. We don't have rules, but we also aren't psychologically prepared. Because there's nothing in everyday life that's like this, right, where you have an intimate conversation or something that seems like an intimate conversation, but it turns out that, well, you're on Twitter, let's say, right? You seem I think you that- might feel like you're talking to one person, but in fact, anyone who wants to, right. uh, uh, to eavesdrop can in fact, yeah, exactly. It's much more like, you know, well, talking on the radio. Um, but uh, that point about psychological attitudes, I think, is really important. Because I think, you know, if we move past bullying and trolls in the sort of most overt way, and you just think about what it is about our actions on social platforms and our life, our digital form of life that we're living right now, that can set us up for harmful public discourse. I think 
one of the things that it does is not just encourage uh, bad behavior per se, but it encourages in all of us, present you know present company uh, included, I'm afraid, at least with me, a type of arrogance. You mentioned that word before. I think it's what I, I just want to define it uh, in a particular way. What I what I mean by it here is a sort of intellectual or epistemic arrogance, and I think of that as as the attitude I have when I think that I can't, I, there's no nothing that somebody has to teach me. Nobody has anything to teach me about some particular issue. I know it all already. That, that know-it-allism is something that the structure of our platforms really can encourage. So I, I can maybe buy that, but I, I'm not sure I'd go as far as saying that everyone is going to be affected in the same way. So I mean, you know, I, I think about my own behavior online. I'm capable of getting uh, irritated and shirty, as we Brits like to say. But uh, I don't think I would ever issue someone a death threat, for example. Well, that, yeah, I, I don't think you. I, I don't think you would, Josh. I know you. You're a great guy. <laughs> but I, I know. I, but I want to reject it in another way. I don't know what mean for Josh and I to pile up on you. Well, yes, I do. <laughs> and then you can respond to. Wait, wait are, we, are we bullying our guests? <laughs> yeah, no, right. no, I don't. What you call you arrogance? Guys stop picking on me. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, what you call arrogance, I'm not sure if I'd call it arrogance. I mean, I see that. I see that. But I think there's also another response that may seem more rational to people. It's a kind of defensiveness. That is, look, we were evolved for conversations in the small circle where people are mutually committed to the same kind of goals. And and, and the Internet opens us up to all comers with all different kind of goals in what has the feel of a conversation but isn't really a conversation, right? So we're not jointly committed. And when all these interlopers come in or what I want to see as interlopers come in, it's not so much that I get arrogant and I know nothing, but I get defensive and I want to defend myself from your constant intrusion onto, onto this little shared space. So I don't know, maybe one, man, one person's arrogance is another person's uh, online defensiveness. What do you think about that? I think they're actually deeply connected. I think that's a really great point about defensiveness because let's just think about arrogance in general. People who are arrogant, who have that sort of know-it-all attitude, those people, even if they do know it all, in fact, they do know a lot about that particular subject, when they're being arrogant, they're actually being self-defensive. When you think about, I think about the times and I find myself being arrogant, which is, you know, like pretty much every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, <laughs> I, uh, I, 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 uh, I, I'm often doing it because I do have a sort of I'm privileging my self-esteem. I want to protect that self-esteem, and I want to protect the group that I'm in. If I, you know, part of what 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 happens is we can go fall into sort of tribal arrogance too, right? Which right. is what you know, right. my side's got it all figured right. out, people, right? And we get defensive about our tribe, not just about ourselves. So it sounds uh, because, like, of course, our tribe is part of ourselves. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it sounds like there are actually multiple sources of internet bad behavior, right? So there's the kind of thing that Holly was talking about, the actual sociopaths, the people who thrive on causing trouble. Right, um, right. There's this tribal mentality, there's more generalized arrogance. Maybe we should also add things like, you know, Stondhal has lovely, lovely phrase, impotent rage, that people are, are increasingly feeling disempowered, and maybe this is a way for certain folks to, to try to seize a sense of control over their lives and power, not a good way. But uh, So I wonder, do you think there are multiple uh, sort of psychological uh, factors pushing people to behave badly? Yeah, I, I really do. And I'd, I'd add another one too, which is a sort of structure of many of the platforms we use encourage a type of personalized experience. In fact, mm. that personalization is how the, the, the magic on the internet actually happens. Everything that we read on the internet from the news sites we check to 
the ads that come down our Facebook feed, all that stuff is highly personalized. And it's personalized because platforms like Google, of course, track all of our online behavior and the behavior of every single person on the planet, which is almost every single person on the planet, who uses that platform. And they use that to predict both the questions we're going to ask and the answers that we want, right? They, yeah. You know, right. Google Complete. Right. You, you, you type in right climate change. You, readers can try this at home right now. Uh, climate change is a in uh -oh. Google and it'll it'll give you some suggestions. <laughs> oh, right. Uh -oh. For like is a hoax or, oh my is it, you know, it, it'll suggest some so things. You're talking, right? about the, you're talking about the filter bubble that people are trapped. Uh, exactly. Exactly. And I'm, I'm I'm saying that those bubbles are partly created by the way that our platforms allow us to both encourage us to ask certain questions and then encourage certain answers. And what that ends up doing is feeding back into this sort of idea that, well, we've got it figured out. Look, right. I have yeah. all the answers, yeah. right? They're right there. Right, Google right. it, we tell each other. Right. Google it. I know I'm right. So, so Michael, I want, I want to let another Michael in here as a caller. So you're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about intellectual humility, the possibility or impossibility of it online, and we'd love to have your contribution humble, as it may be. And another Michael from Boston's on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Michael. What's your comment or question? Yes, uh, a couple of quick things before I get to what I was going to say. and uh, Make it one quick thing, okay? <laughs> okay, uh, just to say that um, the personalization brings into reality a paranoid schizophrenic's ideas of reference. And really, what I would call in to say is that the, the Internet has not been the same since they let people who couldn't code HTML onto it. <laughs> in what way? Tell me more, Michael. In what well, way do I was you on that? the Internet before it was the web, right. and uh, it was designed largely by academics and researchers, uh. and certainly there are horrible people in academia, but uh, even when there was anonymous, even when people used handles, if someone were particularly obnoxious, you could go to their, the sysop of the system they were on gotcha. and report them. So there was that. As to the thing that I added that I didn't say I was going to say, paramount, or one of the prime symptoms of paranoid schizophrenia is the idea that things in the universe are talking especially to you and designed for you. And on the Internet, that's real. So okay. in some ways, it's not strange that it help support paranoia. Okay, Michael, thanks for the thanks a lot for the call. Josh, you want to say something? Yeah, about I, mean, I think Michael, it's a fantastic uh, other... point because look, the internet or these pla many of these platforms were created uh, at a time when we were talking about a small community of users who relatively speaking knew each other and could trust each other. And so we're we've just expanded things out without really thinking hard about what it would what we have what we would need to change. Yeah. So Michael Lynch, what do you, what do you think about that? I think it's a really, really fascinating point as well. I agree with Josh. I mean, I think uh, not only have we expanded the numbers of people using it, and but the the caller Michael was pointing out that the people the people who are using the internet, that is all of us, including myself right now, we really don't know fundamentally how most of it works. That is, we don't understand most of the platforms. Now, in one sense, that's not much different than the fact that I don't know how my television works or my toaster works or my car works or, you know, we live in a technological society where technical expertise is not had by the majority of the population that uses the technology. Nonetheless, the difference here is that most of us don't know even that the Internet is personalized. Um, yeah. Most people are not even aware of how the Internet 
functions as an economic tool. And, and we can see that in those Facebook hearings just last week. No, right? no, you're right. Where the, the senators were like asking basic questions like, well, how do you make your money if it's free? <laughs> yeah, I know. We run ads, Senator. <laughs> the, uh, uh, the people don't realize that on Facebook they're the product, not the customer. Exactly. And, and that Facebook is devoted to analyzing, collecting, marshalling their data in any way they can get away with and and selling it off to other people. But that's certainly true. But I, I want to go back to another th- point. I, I, don't, I think you're right. I think you and Josh and the other Michael are right. There's something really deep. It's that ordinarily, ordinary ways we have of going about knowing things, believing things, talking to people. The internet radically disrupts all those things, and nobody really foresaw the effects of that radical disruption, right? So it's like we're in a brave new world that's completely unanticipated. That, that's what it seems to me. Because, right. like, who do you trust? What source do you trust? When there are all, a plethora of possible sources, none of them marked as intrinsically or authoritative, and you've got to believe this and believe that on the basis of this? I mean, wh- who do you trust? And why do you trust them? And then, since that's such a hard problem to solve, you decide who to trust and decide who to fil- filter out. You call that arrogance and know-it-allism. I'm still think it's a kind of defensiveness against an onslaught of information that comes at you with no like intrinsic mark of believability or authority or anything like that. What do you think about that tirade? <laughs> well, I, <laughs> I, I, I think there's a lot there, although I want to push back on one point. Good. I think that for, for, um, for a long time, we did feel sort of overwhelmed with information on the Internet. And if you look back on book titles that came out, let's say, about 10 years ago, a little bit uh, even uh, or, you know, um, uh, sooner than that, we, we had lots of things like the information overload, um, the uh, flood was another one. Yeah. The idea was that we had is that we, we couldn't deal with all this stuff and just the thing you're articulating. But I think right now, actually, that feeling for most people – uh, has really gone away. And I think that's even more worrying. Yeah, yeah. Because that's it's not the, that the, the flood way. has changed. Right, it's exactly. just that it's, you know, we've become used to it. No, and no, of no, no, our, no. Because they've right, developed you know? a strategy for coping with it. It's right. it's right. the tribalism. It's the information cocoon. It's a response. It, and in a way, it's an effective response because it does tamp down, right, the jungle of information to something you can manage. But that tamping it down is driven by confirmation bias and all kinds of cognitive And forward. by the platforms that are designed to allow it to be easier for you to find that restaurant uh, where you are, get the directions to it, find out what other people think about it, which is fantastic when you're looking for a restaurant. But when you're looking for information on a political candidate or fa- trying to figure out immigration policy and what you think about it, that sort of personalization, that th- way in which the Internet is like a self-driving car that takes you where it thinks you want to go, that is not a recipe for disaster. Thing. Yeah. we got to exactly. call her to try to get her in for the break. Alicia from Berkeley, welcome to Philosophy Talk. What's your comment or question? Well, um, I've been wondering for a while why it seems that the discourse on these you know, various platforms has gone down rather than up. Mm. So in the, in the old days, I'm aging myself, it seems like people you know, would tell racist or sexist or whatever jokes in private with sort of their similar group, but you wouldn't necessarily see that on TV or in the newspapers, et cetera. And I know that our lovely president with his reprehensible tweets has certainly contributed to this, but even before he became president, it seems like rather than feeling less permission, 
to say these things in public, people feel more permission. So, Alicia, I think you're right, and I think Michael can answer that, because I think the point he made about the personalization of the Internet, I think will help illuminate your point, but I'm guessing you think that, Michael. What do you, Am I right or wrong? You are absolutely right. I think it's a great point. And I was waiting, of course, for the world's most famous Twitter feed to come up because when we and rightly so, because when we talk about the normalization of bad behavior on the Internet, real at real Donald Trump certainly does play a part. And part of what's happened here is that, as uh, Ken was saying, we live in these filtered bubbles where when we when we you know say something that is har- harmful or hurtful to the tribe on the other side we get all this confirmation yep. and support from right. those of us who agree so it's not that we're getting censored right there's no internet mom that comes in and says Michael Patrick Lynch, you stop that bad behavior online right now. <laughs> right. Well, no, of course, that's this is one of, again, it, I agree with you that it, not everything is terrible, but the fact that crackpots can find so much support now, right. that's a real feature. It is world. a real feature and not a bug by some designers' lights, but maybe by our social lives' light, it's a bug. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're asking about intellectual hum- humility and online discourse with Michael Lynch from the University of Connecticut. Can we design online platforms that lead to more kindness and less bullying, more humility, less arrogance? Can we as consumers create a better online experience for everyone? Kindness, humility, and a better internet for all when Philosophy Talk continues. goat. It's my dander right up. Bloody told him. No, no jazz solo. This is supposed to be a diss song. Jeffrey, get off the drums. I'll leave it to the Brit. If only <laughs> all online flame wars were as polite and civil as they are in Chap-Hop. I'm Ken Taylor, and this is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy. Our guest is Michael Lynch from the University of Connecticut, and we're asking about trolling, bullying, and humility online. We received an email from Sam in San Francisco. Sam says, what drives people to want followers online so desperately? How does this facilitate or grow bullying? What do you think, Michael? Well, I think uh, in that case, and I I think what drives people to want followers online are two things. One, basic human psychology. One of the things that platforms like Twitter and Facebook, Facebook initially, uh, really figured out is that people like to be liked. Um, No kidding. (laughs) But you take that, like a lot of businesses that are successful, right? You take something really simple like that, really simple, and you turn it into a platform. People like to be liked. That's what drives people. But the other thing is, of course, is that... Uh, once you do understand the system, you realize that those likes uh, actually, of course, are the economic drivers for things like targeted advertising. Right. So, it, you know, that, you know, economic reasons, again, another uni- human universal, that, people like money, what, is also what drives Which leads to that, another right? thing that I just, I just, I realized this belatedly, just the other day when I was thinking about you are the product on Facebook. I actually said this in a Facebook forum, and a lot of people saying, well, it's a good bargain, blah, blah, blah. And I thought about emojis. 
right? And people's mm -hmm. demand for more and more emojis so that they could respond to things with more nuanced uh, emotional indicators, right? But right. Uh, and, and, and they were like complaining uh, to Facebook about more and more. And you know what? I, I realized Facebook was like, sure, I'll give you more emojis because <laughs> that gives me much more data about you, right? <laughs> exactly. Oh, do you exactly. like this? Do you have like this? Does this make you angry? It's like you're constantly in an experiment with Facebook for what drives you, and they don't do anything except exploit that information. Can I pick up on something we were talking about a moment ago? So people like to be liked, right? So I'm curious, you know, think looking forward, right, on the question whether there's anything we can do about the current situation. Are we just talking about, Michael, are we just talking about basically a fixed set of capacities and propensities that human beings have? So people like to be liked, things like that. Or is there anything we can do? I mean, can education intervene? Yeah. I mean, can we change people's souls to make it more likely to behave well? And you, I know you're the man to tell us this because you lead it on. You lead a research program on just how to improve uh, intellectual humility on the internet, right? So tell us some of the highlights of your own research. So one of the things that uh, let me just pick up on the things about the emoticons on Facebook. One of the things that we're learning is the degree to which those emoticons, the happy face, the, uh, the sad face, the outrage face, right, that are on, is how much they uh, shape online comedy. People, you know, and you can, your, you know, listeners can verify this for themselves. When you, when, if it can po post something and I, I, I see that all of our friends um, already are outraged by it, that I'm probably not, first of all, going to, I'm going to feel peer pressure, right, not to uh, like it. Moreover, if I do also go outrage face, I'm not, it shapes how I'm going to interact with the post, why I'm going to share it, and what I'm going to say about it. Right. It's not as if you do outrage face and then you say, oh, you know, actually this has a lot of very interesting points. You should consider this. <laughs> Look into it more carefully. You know, I mean, that's not how it goes. So That's, that's my style. Think, why, why are you knocking my style? <laughs> right. One of the things that you need to do is to get people to be aware of the way in which how they interact with the platform can can interact their uh, affect their behavior. But yeah. it also might lead to thing, us thinking about, well, what about ways of of reacting that aren't having to do with emoticons. Mm. Those are emotional reactions, nothing wrong with emotions, but they're not, let's say, I mean, think of, and this is sort of a joke, but not really, think of the, what if What if we had reactive buttons that said something like, um, probably justified by the evidence, yeah, probably not right. justified, mm. and I'm not sure I need more information. So let me ask, so, I mean, so this raises a, so, it sounds like you're suggesting, and maybe your research is, uh, has shown this, or some research has shown this. It sounds like you're suggesting, uh, which would be a hopeful thing, if you make people more reflective about the consequences of various forms of online behavior, like uh, which emoticon you choose to react to something, right? then that has the potential to ameliorate uh, their behavior in some way or other. Is that what you're suggesting? Is that really that a is, robust... That is, uh, that, is, that is what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting that actually also we can think about designing our platforms to make us more reflective. Some of the... We have 10 global teams working on these sorts of topics. And one of the teams is interested in... Uh, Grant, led by Graham Smith out in Westminster. You know, one, of the, one of the things they're interested in is restructuring uh, commenting sections and online platforms. And one way to do that is to try to 
experiment with different ways that those platforms can run. And while, of course, the research is still ongoing, some of the suggestions that I'm making right now are coming out of thinking about some of the research that we have uh, developed. So this is really fascinating. It's really fascinating. But I'm going to ask you, I don't want to sound cynical, right? Pure research is one thing, and then the economic exploitation. Are there incentives in in the market economy, right? I mean, Google, Facebook, are there incentives for them to adopt these platforms that will make for more responsible, more humble, if you will, intellectually humble online behavior? Or are the, are the incentives, the economic incentives, all against that? So we got two different things pushing. I think, uh, again, turning to sort of human universals, it's rarely the case, I'm afraid, in my opinion, that there are economic incentives to be ethical. Yeah, right. If you want people to, to be ethical and to be just... And you want a society that's more interested in actually working together and listening to each other, then you're going to need to engage in social reform. And that means changing norms. And that's tough, dirty work. It's political work. It's philosophical work. But you can't avoid it. There's no technological magic solution to this problem. Yeah, we can make our platforms better, of course. But we, you, you've hit the nail right on the head that if, if we really want to get uh, people to change, we've got to change incentives. Well, how do you change incentives if you can't, you know, you can't just make so, money off of ethics? So, yeah, so, so you've got to change norms. So, so I, 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 I hear you, and it resonates to a lot of things I've been thinking about. But, but here, here's the thing that gets me. So I'm kind of, in some ways, a Habermasian I, in the sense that I believe that there's a there's what he calls a logic of, of, of rational discord, of, of community. There's a kind of communicative rationality uh-huh. such that when you're engaging a conversation and a conversation is a mutual, mutually constraining search for truth, you don't, you don't want the mere manipulation. You don't want this, that, and the other thing. Okay, to the extent that we are committed to uh, to democracy and equality and stuff like that, then it seems to me we should be committed as a collectivity to something like what Habermas calls communicative rationality. But I have I I have begun to despair that we really are committed to the logic of communicative rationality in this Habermasian sense, and I don't know how we get. To, you know what I mean? I mean, there's the, speech is about persuasion and manipulation and. Not like a mutual search for truth and the force of the better reason. How do we do this? How do we get, you know? Well, I think one thing, I mean, if to, first of all, I, I completely agree with you, though. I want to, I would just push back one thing, which is that, you know, in general, we might say that, you know, ethics, well, you know, at the end of the day, we have our all have our sort of Glauconian or Thrasymachian <laughs> moments where we're like, you know, at the end of the day, screw this, just yeah. go out for yourself because right. nothing is ever going to work and we really can't change things. Well, yeah, human beings are not often nice to each other, and we've got to figure out ways to work around that. Right now, what we're seeing on the Internet is just a... So uh, technologies and platforms that, in some, as we've been discussing, encourage particularly uh, undemocratic attitudes. And what we've got to do is to go back to the example that I suggested. We can, you know, so coming back off of the cynicism a little bit, think about certain concrete things you can do. One thing you can do is educate. For example, here's a concrete example. Suppose that uh, we need to educate people about how much of their data is being taken online. We talked about that before. Why? Because that's part of the background conditions that are allowing uh, people to be manipulated on the, on the internet. So 
you know, it would be great if we were able to sort our, our, our apps online in a quick, easy way of doing it. When you're on the, the Google Store, you're on the, you know, the, the, any particular platform looking at different uh, apps to buy, what, and you were searching, let's say, for a flashlight app or something like that, you would want to be able to search for it in a way that, that said this app, for example, uh, takes more of your, re- requests more of your data. And if you're going to download this app, it's going to request more of your data. Now, Google and other platforms do get you that information if you really look for it. Yeah. But if, if it allowed us to easily sort things by how much data they're taking, that would actually educate people in a very, very quick way. I agree. We have I mean, to it, provide norms to make that happen. Right. But and I, I also think, think – It's mean, not I, a crazy thought. Right? No, not at all. And I, I, I'm actually even maybe more uh, ambitious. I think maybe we could – uh, focus more on education, as it were, for virtue. I mean, cultivate uh, the, the the desire to interact in a kind of Habermasian way with our fellow human beings. But it seems to me we've got you know, you know, three main possibilities, right? Educate people for virtue on the one side, the highly optimistic maybe. And then the highly cynical one is uh, people are never going to be, uh, never going to change. They're always going to have bad motivations. And so we just kind of ward those off by means of technology. In the middle, I think we have nudges. We've got, we set the defaults, right? We set up our, our uh, response emoticons and whatever in such a way as to make it more likely rather than less likely that people will behave in the way that we want. So why don't you give us your last thought, and then we'll have to say goodbye to you, unfortunately, uh, Michael. My last thought is uh, just picking up on the idea that in order to educate for virtue, we first need to just start by educating Period, and that yeah. means getting people <laughs> to, to to read stuff, interact with other people, and and have an attitude that they, you know, we're willing to learn from people who are different from us. That's the trick: is to get people to have that sort of humility, yeah. the idea that they're not know-it-alls, yeah. not be so defensive. Yeah, Michael, this has been a fascinating conversation, and I really thank you for joining me. You've been a great guest. Thank you so much, Michael. Uh, thank you. It was a lot of fun. Our guest has been Michael Lynch. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of Connecticut. He's author of The Internet of Us, Knowing More and Understanding Less in the Age of Big Data. I'm in the middle of reading that book. I highly recommend it to you. So, Josh, are you humbled? Are you defensive? Yeah, and look, in the spirit of humility, I've got to say, this is a very difficult topic. And, you know, part of it is a lot of these things are the two sides of the same coin, the very same anonymity creates these problems is also very empowering for disadvantaged and disempowered groups and you know so so it's really tricky we've got to be able to tamp down some of this bad behavior while still allowing the space for all the important conversations to flourish which means that it's a really complex design problem in which multiple forces converge and interact and i don't think we've begun to imagine the, the, a better space. I mean, we have begun, but we're such a long way. Michael is encouraging. His research is encouraging and fascinating. But you know what? This conversation continues. It will continue at Philosopher's Corner, at our online uh, community of thinkers, where our motto, with apologies to Descartes, is cogito ergo blogo. I think, therefore I blog. And you can become a partner, and please do in that community, by visiting our website, philosophytalk.org. And if you have a question that wasn't addressed in today's Today's show. We'd love to hear from you. Send it to us at comments at philosophytalk.org, and we may feature it on our blog. Now a man who can outrun any troll. It's Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Ian Scholes, the rise of the Internet has damaged many things. Taxi cabs, bookstores, movie attendance, newspapers, and apparently civility. Though I have to say, we were plenty rude before modems and Wi-Fi came along. One of my biggest pastimes as a boy was the would-you-rather game. Would you rather be blind or deaf? Would you rather lose an arm or a leg? 
And as the sleepover got later, the game became more morbid and exotic. Would you rather be rolled down a hill in a barrel full of nails or shot out of a clown cannon into an active volcano? Ah, yes, the ages 8 to 10 are magical years for American boys. And that age seems to be the sweet spot for the Internet, culture-wise. Slightly disturbed preteen boys, highly territorial with mysterious yet inflated sense of what is right. All that preteen boy behavior wandered into cyberspace. Trolling is the equivalent of, go ahead, knock it off a daria, or calling somebody out for wearing yellow on Thursday, which makes you a morphodite, whatever that is and therefore eligible for a fistfight. Trolls come into your clubhouse, make fun of what you stand for, and ruin everything. And bullying, of course, knows no age or boundaries. You can't really say they've gotten more nuanced, but I would say flame wars today are easier to cause. And you might not even know why. Who was the best Felix Leiter? Was T.S. Eliot a good poet? Who won World War II? Springsteen versus Dylan. Way in. Almost anything can be clickbait for a war. Also, certain trigger words can cause fire to shoot out of people's heads at great distances. Trump, Roseanne, Hillary, single shooter. Trial lawyers, politically correct, Stormy Daniels, Confederate statues, Kennedy, Vietnam, gun control, you name it. Flame wars are bigger than ever, but they spread into the real world via Twitter, becoming news in and of themselves. Real news versus fake news, Trump collusion versus Hillary emails on a more mundane level. Send a tweet saying you've just had the best barbecue in the world, for example. Then sit back and wait for the death threats to come in. It takes so little to trigger so much. Star Wars versus Star Trek, Kirk versus Picard, Boba Fett versus what are you even talking about? Marvel versus DC, The Stones versus The Beatles, John versus Paul, frivolous lawsuits versus justice for all. Political correctness versus just quit being a racist, sexist jerk. How hard is that, really? Wearing labels and coffee versus just move to Alabama if you think California sucks so bad. Roger Moore versus Sean Connery. Vaccines, veganism, fluoridation. I'm on fire. Edward versus Jacob. He versus Annette, Spin versus Marty, Mind versus Body, Mods versus Rockers, Jets versus Sharks, Skins, Shirts, Innate, Acquired, Filtered, Unfiltered, Boys, Girls, Curly versus Shrimp, Pudding versus Proof, Yes versus No, Intuition versus Cold, Hard Reason, Renaissance versus Enlightenment, The Infield Fly Rule versus what? Evolution versus Creationism, Netflix versus Amazon, Upstairs, Downstairs, East Coast, West Coast, Neo, Soul, Hip Hop, Acid House, Future Pop, Headphones versus Speakers as Big as Your Couch. Artisanal versus store-bought, millennial versus boomer, wide wheel versus narrow wheel, cauterized high-top sneakers, juries out, pension plans, pro-life, pro-choice, Mac versus PC, raise versus fold, daylight savings time, just stop it. Golden age versus silver age, Batman versus Superman. The wars can go on for years, usually fueled by men until they get hoarse from shouting. Women don't go in for flame wars so much. They tend to just talk about something until it turns into something they can talk about, whereas men will eventually either call you Hitler or a cuck snowflake and walk away. Which is why there's no wall at the border, all the bridges are falling down, healthcare is too expensive, and mansplaining is still a thing. Scream in all caps if you disagree. I gotta go. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of KALW, local public radio San Francisco, and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University. Copyright 2018. Our executive producers are David Demarest and Matt Martin. The senior producer is Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Cindy Prince-Baum is our director of marketing. Thanks also to Mo Kessler, Carola Kreitmeyer, Emily King, Angela Johnston, and Colin Peden. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from various groups at Stanford University and from the partners at our online community of thinkers. The views expressed or misexpressed in this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you too can become a partner in our community of thinkers. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking. Tastes great. Less filling. Tastes great. Less filling. Tastes great.